I think a whole lot of people, they really care about these things that really matter. They've never seen religious communities care about it in a meaningful or effective way. And so in a sense, they've stayed away from religion for really good reasons and been drawn to work that is holy work for really good reasons. And I think one of our jobs as Christians is uh, not to condemn them for being outside the religious world, but actually to encourage them for, for following their heart and following their conscience to something good. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Mission Hills Conversations podcast. My name is Ryan, and I'm the director of community here at Mission Hills. And my name is also Ryan, and I am the pastor of uh, Mission Hills, Los Angeles. Two Ryans, no waiting. Yeah, and uh, this is our second uh, attempt at an intro for the uh, forthcoming podcast here. Who do we have this week? Who do we talk with? So this week we talked to Brian McLaren, and it's unbelievable. I mean, he was so real and so honest. We talked Enneagram. We talked uh, current events. We talked, he had spent some time in Charlottesville. I don't know, what, what stood out to you? There was so much good stuff in the, in the episode and the conversation. Gosh, I think the thing that really stuck out was uh, his stories. He yeah. provided a lot of stories that really helped connect what he was saying to, to real life things that he'd experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think those stories provided so much extra context to just kind of the amazing wisdom he was sharing. Right. Because it was just so real, you yeah. know, it was something you could identify. A lot of times I feel like when you listen to someone who's such a well-known author like Brian, they kind of just give you the party lines. Right, right. You know, everything's mm-hmm. like recycled. It sort of seems scripted. Right. They can kind of give you the elevator pitch yeah. of the whatever most recent book or yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and he's not concerned with that mm-hmm. or wasn't in this episode, I guess. Yeah, not at all. I mean... As someone, uh, you know, I read most of his book the, the week before, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a great book. It's, a, it's called The Great Spiritual Migration, and so we, we frame some of the conversation around that, but really everything he says in this episode is completely new. Yeah. It's, it's not stuff that you would find in the book, which uh, I really appreciated about it, because uh, sometimes yeah. I'll listen to a podcast, and it'll make me want to go read a book, and then I'll read the book and think, well, that was kind of like the podcast <laughs> in so, so many ways. So I completely agree. I yeah. completely agree. I think that I think that he just gave us um, just a really uh, clear and, uh, I don't know what's the best word to look for. Clear is not the best word. He yeah. just, he offered, he offered transparency. I guess yeah. that instead of clear, he offered transparency with where he feels we are right now uh, in terms of culture and uh, you know things that are interacting politically, and then also how we can step up and how we can mm-hmm. answer. It wasn't just yeah. like, man, things are bad. We right. better hit our knees and pray. It was <laughs> practical. Yeah, it was really practical. Yeah, I so, just appreciate that. Going into this episode, what do you think the uh, listeners uh, should look for or could take away? Uh, I really, I again would just point him back to the stories mm-hmm. and just listen to the stories that he shares, especially about the conversations. Yeah. Uh, he gets into uh, a really interesting story about Charlottesville and, and some of the things that he saw there. And I think I, I just would really pay attention to those things. I think there's yeah. a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. I think one thing that I took away personally was the fact that uh, a lot of the conversations that we find ourselves in, just as Americans in 2017, we watch the news. 
we look at our Facebook feed or our Twitter feed or whatever, and we can be overwhelmed by the urgency of a lot of the stuff that's going on. And I took away that you can both have that urgency, uh, the awareness, uh, a deep awareness of uh, some of the real conflicts in today's society, and also be hopeful. Yeah. And that's crazy to me, is the balance and stability that he just sort of carries as a person to to be able to assess the needs of society and then put a hopeful positive spin on it. it's amazing something you, i feel like i don't really hear regularly in conversations and dialogue about sort of our current yeah. problems no i agree so, uh, I, I absolutely agree i, I really hope that uh, the listeners uh, enjoy this one because uh, i certainly enjoyed the conversation it was, it was a great one. One of our best so far. Yeah. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get into it. All right. Brian McLaren. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Mission Hills Conversations podcast. This week, we are very excited to be talking with Brian McLaren. Brian, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. It's really good to meet you. Uh, good to meet you guys. Glad to be Thanks, here. Brian. So for our listeners who are still getting to know Brian, Brian is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. Uh, he's also a former college English teacher and pastor. Uh, he's a popular conference speaker and frequent guest lecturer for denominational and ecumenical leadership gatherings. And his public speaking covers a broad range of topics, including postmodern thought and culture, biblical studies, evangelism, leadership, global mission, spiritual formation, Big favorite of mine. I would, oh man, I'm a huge spiritual formation nerd over mm-hmm. here. Uh, worship, pastoral service and burnout, uh, religious, interreligious dialogue, ecology and social justice. Just a few. Just things. to name a Just few. Just a few. Yeah. <laughs> if, in case I, you... I, I don't talk about cooking and I don't talk about golf. Oh, oh well, that's good. It's it's you nice can't to do it all. It's nice to know that you're not an expert in everything. Uh, that would be a little intimidating. <laughs> so yeah, we, I, we really we're really looking forward to digging into some of these topics, uh, specifically interreligious dialogue and social justice. But before we get going, we thought it would be really fun to talk about something that Ryan and I have kind of been nerding out on lately: the Enneagram. Yeah, uh, this, we've we've been going through the Enneagram with our church community here, kind of doing an introduction. We do a community group on Wednesday nights, and we've been uh, reading through Suzanne Stabile and Ian Cron's book. So. Uh, so yeah, we thought it'd be good just to open up and ask your Enneagram number. Yeah, what's, okay, what's your number? so you guys are a two and a four. Yeah, you're talking with two and a four. Yep. Okay, well, I have a four, but I'm an yes. unusual four. Okay. Uh, in that I, I sort of vacillate between a three-wing and a five-wing. So okay. uh, when I was a pastor, I really had to lean four with a three-wing. And as an author, I'm a lot more nerdy, and I go four with a five-wing. Oh yeah, interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and I wonder too. Like you know, um, Ian always talks about. Uh, I think it's Roar that says first half of life. You know, you you kind of tend to go to one wing, and then the second half yeah. of life you tend to fluctuate and and go to the other wing. So maybe it's a little bit of that too. Yeah. Hey, there you go. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm a I'm a four three as well. Uh, definitely a four three. So it's a torturous combo to be a four three. It really is. Yeah, and I'm I'm a two I'm a two three, which is interesting. Um, but you know, I'm learning that I exhibit a lot more of the dark qualities of the two, the helper that I'm that I'm trying to work through. So <laughs> I was I was guessing you were a nine. I'm I was way off. Just listening to all of your podcasts and reading your books, I was like, he's gotta be a nine. He just wants to make sure that everyone's just so happy and peaceful and uh 
It's been great. Well, that, that thank you for sharing that with us. I uh, I would have never guessed, but we're I, yeah. I'm in good company with a four here. Yeah. Do you see your you enneagram know? number uh, working into how you understand your your work recently? Oh yeah. So you know, as a you, you could say it this way, when I, when I was well before I became a pastor, I my uh, you know professional life was to be a college English teacher. So you can see right. how fours would be interested in literature and meaning and art and all that sort of thing yeah um i also you know was a creative person i was a songwriter and a musician and uh you know i did i wrote poetry that sort of thing right um so that creative side was there when i became a pastor and a church planter in many ways the church was my art form and Mm -hmm. preaching was kind of performance art and so it always was about creativity and you know that poor desire to be different i never i never had any interest in just being another church, uh, I, uh, yeah, I yeah. always wanted to do something creative and different. So yeah, yeah, I think that describes me pretty well. And um, in my life now, uh, obviously, the four part of me enjoys creatively generating content, so right? Books, yeah, books, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's that that has uh, it's worked well for me. You know, some of the downsides of fours is that we're often uh, prone to depression, right? And uh, we're often pretty hard on ourselves and. Um, early in my life, I, I could feel that kind of suck of depression mm. so powerfully that I think uh, I said, boy, I've got to learn how to you know, take care of my mood and my attitude. So I think that's why right. a lot of people think of me more like a nine because I, I'm like fours are often seen as very dramatic and I'm a kind of a low drama guy. My, yeah. my drama sneaks up on you. It's not uh, obvious. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, yeah, and it's interesting too. Being being a pastor that's a four, I I, I feel like I could probably talk to you a lot about this topic. But uh, just the idea that you know, even if I, I don't tend to be too moody either, but um, you can kind of you get in those zones where you you take on a particular mood. And being in a pastoral position where you're around people all the time, and often you're you're in very stressful situations or people come to you with uh, their stresses uh, and kind of having to, to balance and take care of yourself so that you can be a stable person for, for others is, is something that I've really, uh, I've really had to battle with and, and figure I out. I gotta tell you, Ryan, you're very smart to pay attention to that, I think. Um, because if you were only a two, like your partner there, uh, you know, you'd find that caring for people uh, to be energizing and meaningful. But I, I remember as a pastor, this sounds terrible, but you'll get it. Um, I would spend a whole day counseling people. And I helped a lot of people, you know, from mm-hmm. morning to night. And at the end of the day, I would think, I really didn't get anything done today. <laughs> yeah. I could not tell you how many times I've had that happen to me. To where I'd be doing cartwheels in the street. Like I had literally the most productive day. You can't oh. tell many I can't tell you how many people I helped. It would yeah. just be it would be the perfect day. I had that same thought. But then when it comes to like other stuff, like I feel like I'm kinda like that character uh niggle in that Tolkien story where he just often gets taken from uh, his projects where he's always just looking to help other people. He's just like mm-hmm. someone needs a hand and he's like yeah, all right, I'll jump in. Like, we, you know, it just something about that dependability. But like I said, the dark side of kind of uh, becoming obsessed with that, uh, that being neat, that needed feeling um, 
that becomes a high that uh, is is very dangerous for a two. Uh, so that's been that's been a fine line for me to walk in understanding a little bit more about myself and and uh, you know and, and in my role here at the church, uh, understanding the dark side of the two has helped me become actually a better leader. So it's just really interesting how the enneagram not only helps you personally, but it just also does help you professionally. I think it's something that I wish more organizations and corporations would integrate into. The their uh, training and a lot of stuff for their executives because I think anytime you know a little bit more about your motivation, you're going to be a, a better X, Y, and Z. I mean, you could list the number of things you'll be better at, a better person, a better spouse, a better employee, like so many other things, yeah. if you can kind of understand that motivation. So yeah. we've had a great time with our community. We have a, yeah, a been, whole number, basically every number representative except for like eights and... Yeah, we don't have an eight. We don't have an eight, and I don't think we have a no five. No one to challenge us. Yeah. No one to challenge None us. None of that so. stuff. But, but man, it's been, it's been really awesome. Yeah, so since we're talking about being you know, working in the church and being pastor. So you were in your late 30s whenever you kind of had that moment, I think, where you said, I don't know what's going on here with being a pastor. I don't know if I really want to go on and, and continue to be a Christian. What gave you uh, the strength to, to push past that? Was there a moment um, or a story? I, I mean, to be really honest, it was pretty nip and tuck. I mean, I was hanging on by my fingernails, and it could have gone a couple different ways, I think. Hmm. Um, I, uh, in, in one sense, being a pastor is a very hard place to go through a theological meltdown because people, in a sense, are paying you to you know, dish out. I, I'm sad to say this, but a lot of people are paying you to dish out certainty. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think certainty is an option for human beings, um, but they are legitimately wanting you to give some clarity and some confidence. Right. Um, and there were points where I was so far from certainty that I wasn't—I didn't even have clarity or confidence, and so that was tough. But yeah. the flip side of that is that being a pastor meant that without changing my profession, <laughs> I, I had to stick with it. I couldn't just give up, and there was a sense that that forced me to have to deal with some things that I might have just walked away from if I'd been a, uh, you know, an English professor, mm. uh, as I'd originally planned. Um, so I, I'm grateful. Um, the other thing, though, that being a pastor, the role it played is um, I actually had to be engaged with the Bible, and we got this crazy idea. You know, my tradition was you would pick a verse from the Bible and give a cute talk about it. <laughs> but at some point we got into this thing, uh, I would do series of sermons, but every summer we would go through a book of the Bible, verse, you know, like a chapter a week, something like that. Right. And doing that, I had to deal with all the verses in between the ones that normally were chosen for sermons. And that yeah. is one of the things that really contributed to my theological meltdown because ah. I suddenly huh. wasn't just dealing with the verses that people memorize and mm -hmm. extract and put mm -hmm. into outlines. I was having to deal with the whole the whole shebang and I realized either there's a lot of filler wow. in here or something else is going on in the Bible that I uh, was taught. That's yeah. Wow. You know, that's really interesting. I'm reading a book right now by Tim Keller and he's doing a lot of really deep, uh, exegenesis of, um, uh, you know, books that are sort of glossed over in the Old Testament or sort of just looked at as different stories or narratives. And, you yeah. know, kind of to your point, what you were just saying about the in-between verses and the in-between parts of the story, 
I think so often the context of what we want scripture to say becomes sort of our motivation for what we're pulling out of it. And I think when you allow yourself to immerse yourself in the text and, and start to really get into the inspired part of the text, there's something happening. You can call it Holy Spirit. You can call it your brain, your mind, whatever it is. But there's something there's something that happens where the story starts to resonate in, a, in with a deeper meaning. I think, and I don't know if that's just the beauty of the text being sacred and how it's easily sort of transferable, uh, even though it was written so long ago. The 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 intentionality is still rel- relatively easily transferable. I mean, if you look at someone like. Uh, Joseph or Daniel or, or or Esther. I mean, these are very regular folks who, you know, were not perfect, who were called to do some pretty amazing things. So, you know, it's interesting tying the text to what sort of kept you grounded. Um, I think that's really interesting because it's it's you looked at it in a different way than what most people, you know, when most people are losing their faith, so I'll read the Bible more. Yeah, but what does that mean? You know, but reading in between the lines... Um, yeah, I think that's really that's really important. Yeah, that's really that's really important. You know, just to make a connection between that and Enneagram, I'm going to guess that a two uh, spiritual leader, you're going to open the Bible and look for things that will help people, look yeah. for things that will inspire people. Yep. Um, the problem for the, us fours is we uh, suddenly are like we look at the Bible and we're thinking we're looking for authenticity. Yep. We're looking for yeah. And, and and boy, there's stuff in the Bible that. You know, if you're honest, you say, that doesn't seem right. You know? yeah. And, yeah. And so there aren't many places where it's safe to be honest about mm. those kinds of questions. Of course, a two would come at it, too. A, a yeah. two, you would have somebody come to you and say, I was listening to this preacher on the radio, and he quoted this verse. And you think that's the exact worst, worst verse you should ever quote to somebody yeah. in that situation. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, oh, my goodness. So... Um, uh, yeah, it, uh, and you know what? Part of it you you referred to Richard Rohr earlier, and part of it is that you know you can't know what you don't know until you're ready to know it, and right. and so we all are on this journey, and life keeps getting bigger and deeper and grander for us all, and so you know we we take what we're what we can handle. Yeah, that's interesting that you you pointed out kind of the authenticity perspective and. You know, I, I think I probably have a lot of uh, my life trajectory, really. Uh, I, have, I have you to thank for a lot of that because I was kind of coming of age into Christianity in the, the early 2000s. I was in high school, and really one of my main entry points into Christianity was a new kind of Christian and a lot of the things that you were, you were writing at the time. And so you know, as a young person, probably a four reading, to, reading another four, and sort of the things that you were picking up, the beauty and the authenticity, and really coming to a, a Christian faith that was true on, on the deep, in the deepest sense. Uh, I think now that you've kind of put it through that lens, I bet that really was an attractive thing for me, you know, as a 14, 15 year old, just really new to the faith. Um, because yeah, it was, I didn't get jaded till a lot later because <laughs> I really came into Christianity through the emergent conversation. I said, wow, this is, people are asking the right questions here. You know, so um, so that was probably, yeah, it's, it's inter- interesting that you made that connection. So, But I, I want to transition and, and talk a little bit about the conversations that you start with the Great Spiritual Migration. Because in that book, 
is really different in its tone and its in its content from something like a new kind of Christian or a lot of the other things you've written through the years. Uh, I notice a sense of urgency in the great spiritual migration that um, I don't know you could if you could really say was um, as palpable in some of your your earlier works. And I'm just wondering if that sense of urgency is an accurate assessment or if that if that comes from somewhere or something well, you're experiencing. Well, I'm glad you felt that because that is certainly how I feel, and that's certainly one of the things I wanted to to do in, in the book. Uh, look, we, we all know that some people use urgency to sell books. Uh, just before, you know, you guys uh, called, I, I had the news on, and you know, uh, you know, twelve ways your child could be harmed by what's your in your refrigerator, you know. Uh, uh-huh. You know, they're, yeah. they're always trying to make you afraid of some urgent problem. Right. But um, and the irony is we get so freaked out about non-urgent problems. Like every year, uh, you know, you know that Fox News is going to have a thing on the war against Christmas. Right, and, right. Uh, mm, yeah. They're saying happy holiday instead of Merry Christmas. I mean, give me a freaking break. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Poor Christians are so persecuted in this country. I mean, it's Dearly, just so very dearly, yeah. Um, <laughs> what they're really saying is, let's persecute Jews, you know, by yeah. making them hear us say Merry Christmas. <laughs> true. Let's make them uncomfortable. Wow, yeah, that's a good point. Um, meanwhile, by getting all upset about that, they avoid the really, really urgent problems. You know, yeah. we uh, are living in a, a world where one nut job could press one button and send nuclear bombs flying. Mm-hmm. And actually, we've got two nut jobs. In <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I was about uh, to yeah. say, which one? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, really, this is a big deal, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, second, we, we live in a world where we're every day pumping a huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere that works like a blanket and keeps the heat in. Yeah. And, and you know, you don't have causes with no effect. There's going to be an effect of that. And Absolutely. I live in Southwest Florida. We just had, you know, a record-breaking uh, hurricane here. And yeah. every year more records get broken about, mm. uh, what do they call it, global weirding, because the weather just keeps getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> right. Um, and, and then we've got a problem that the gap between the richest, you know, percent or the richest third of a percent right. and the vast majority of people – that gap is growing bigger and bigger, and there are absolutely predictable things that happen when that gap keeps getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, we could go on. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a real emergency, so yeah, I feel urgent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were we were recently at um, their mass uh, poor people's uh, campaign has had a mass meeting here in Los Angeles, and William Barber spoke at it, and almost half of people that live in Los Angeles are either below the poverty line, at the poverty line, or at risk of being in poverty. Half of the people that live in the city, and mm-hmm. you know, we, we often talk about how uh, Los Angeles always has this really glamorous uh, sort of image, uh, and yet below the surface, uh, half of its residents yeah. are living in really pretty awful conditions. So, yes. Yeah, the, um, the indigenous people, the people who've lived here a long time, or the people who yeah. have traveled here from other, you know, other countries generations ago are just being squeezed and pushed. And, and, you know, when you, you see homelessness all over the place in Los Angeles, but then just down the block, there's a brand new apartment building going up with all the bells and whistles. And you just ask yourself, what types of, uh, 
what types of policies are we putting in place? What what mm-hmm. are we really doing for folks here? Because it, to me, it just doesn't look like we're stepping up and answering some of these questions. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there's... So, so can, I, can I just say... Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, please, when, yeah. So when we hear people freaking out about the war on Christmas or whether a transgender kid has to go to the bathroom that somebody else says or whether the bathroom, you know, where that person is safe, uh, we hear people freaking out about those things. Um, let's let's remember all the issues that, that they're also not talking about. And, right. and here's the thing that drives me crazy, and I'm sure you guys feel this too. When you read the Bible, guess what? The Bible has a lot to say about taking care of the planet. Mm-hmm. All those all those pages that we skipped over in my theological tradition <laughs> were about poverty and injustice and exploitation of workers. That's all in the Bible, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were woes to the rich and so on. We skipped over all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these these issues are actually issues that the Bible really speaks to. And then if we're calling ourselves Christians, these are at the core of Jesus' concerns. You know, people... Uh, this, uh, some people would get upset to hear it said this way, but you could say a big part of Jesus' ministry was distributing free health care. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yep, absolutely. And, and he was making health care not just the privilege of the rich, but available to the most marginal people. Um, so suddenly you say, oh, wow, that's stuff that Jesus was really about, and that's stuff that makes up so many pages of the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's important stuff. So yeah. let's pay attention to it. Yeah. You know, drawing a correlation from from the title of your book, because I think the Great Spiritual Migration, um, in its title, wouldn't really um, it doesn't it doesn't have a scare attack. You're not doing a scare tactic with the title. You're not you're not saying read this because the world is is ending. Uh, but I do I, I do think it's interesting that you leave a lot of space and a lot of room in in this book for all spiritual traditions, that this is a a migration that you see across uh, the major world religions, that uh, change is is coming, change is already here for many of us, and uh, you leave leave and hold a a lot of space for that. But what about people that wouldn't consider themselves very spiritual in general? Where do you see the real-world issues that you talk about uh, with also the spiritual terminology kind of coming together? Yeah. So, boy, you're you're bringing up an awful lot that's important there. Just for example, when you guys were at the gathering with Reverend Barber in Los Angeles, I'm pretty sure that a friend of mine. Uh, We've been given a lot of times as an either or sort of you either you're either in or you're out. You believe this or you don't. And what that has created is kind of all of these sort of things that we've named now that it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, then if it's that black and white, then there must be, this must be a different type of theology. And now all of a sudden, here we are, however many years later, kind of just pulling apart all of these tangled sort of overlapping views of theology and Christianity and in in, in a way are having to parcel them off. But again, that goes counter to the whole narrative of the Gospels and, and even the, the the string that you follow from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation, it's there's cohesion there. And what I think we've done is we've we've separated things so much that I mean it's it's it seems more complicated than it really is, but I think just adapting this kind of both and both and mentality um, will will allow a little bit more freedom. You know, because really, I think the dogma of a lot of the 
things that we've been just given, it's really heavy. It's just yeah. really heavy yeah. stuff. Yeah. And uh, it, it just doesn't really seem to have a place for culture yeah. today. Maybe it did at one point, maybe it didn't, but it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like it does today. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's true. And, uh, uh, and I think it's also true that it may have had a place one day, and that place may have been a very good thing, yeah. a very understandable thing. They were really trying to honestly cope with problems. We also have to be open to the possibility, I, I sometimes call it, it was a weapon of mass distraction. In mm. other words, wow. let's keep people arguing about predestination versus free will, so they'll never talk about having slaves. Yeah, right. <laughs> Whether the slave is your neighbor. Yeah. Let's, you know, and, and so somehow, this is why, you know, I, I just got to say, it's fantastic that you guys have a podcast going where you're creating space where we can raise these kinds of questions. Because the fact was, when I was in my 20s and 30s and I started asking these questions, I literally thought, when I wrote my first book, I thought, I will lose all my friends. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. Because wow. I didn't, know if I had a single friend mm. that it was really safe to talk about all yeah, of these yeah. kinds of questions. So yeah. that's a positive change. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting point because obviously that's a, there's a testament to the shift and a, a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, the, the conversations that you were stepping out and you, the ideas that you were writing about at the time that um, were fringe in some ways, you know, they were dangerous. You were actually, you know, uh, worried about raising some of these questions that now we can, you know, more openly talk about. And, but the flip side of that, right, is that recently we have had a lot of cultural and in the U.S. cultural and religious backlash, right? We see that um, obviously in almost every major U.S. cultural debate, yeah. whether it's yeah. um, the criminal justice system or uh, gun rights or um, the LGBT uh, equality issue. Uh, you have the, Nash the Nashville statement recently mm -hmm. uh, that yeah. came out. And so what is your take maybe on this sort of recent bubbling of, of a pretty obvious backlash to what's generally a more comfortable conversation, but yet we kind of have this like bubbling backlash? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think this is a really interesting moment to be alive, and I think part of what is happening, if I could say it this way, let's say it this way, white, older, white, straight Christian men have run the world in the West for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a way of running the world that benefited the people they liked and people like them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it, the way they ran things hurt a whole lot of people, hurt women, hurt gay people, hurt uh, people of color, uh, uh, hurt people of other religions. So a whole lot of yeah. people were hurt. Yeah. And now those folks are beginning to lose some power. That's why in this last election, that phrase that Trump used, look, I think Trump is diabolical but i also think he's very in a he's very clever and mm -hmm. that phrase make america great again mm -hmm. that word again is really the the electricity yep. because what mm -hmm. that says to white people remember when we were on top remember yeah, wow. when we ran the show remember when men told women what to do remember when you know all that and people say oh those were the days and that's what elicits yeah. them and and so 
what is going to happen in these next few years, and this is why this gun thing is so interesting, uh, in these next few years, uh, either those people are going to use more and more desperate measures to maintain their hegemony, to maintain their control, mm -hmm. uh, or they're, they're going to have to find a way to live with people instead of living over people. And that's what right. I think is, yeah. is, is this moment. Yeah. And I think a whole lot of younger white people and white and white people who traveled and gotten, you know, or, and lived in cities and so on. Right. You realize, hey, you know, we really can live together. We really can get along. Yeah. And life is better when we're in a diverse community where we bring our diversity. And there, instead of fear, there's joy in that for more and more people. Yeah. yeah. It's just a question how we're going to get from here to there. Uh, it's it's going to be a, a, a turbulent patch. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I was I, I was going to say, you know, I saw uh, it was a PRRI uh, Atlantic study that said uh, two it was almost two thirds of white working class Americans uh, believe that their culture had deteriorated deteriorated since the 1950s. Yes. Um, and, yes. you know, one thing that's interesting to me can about. I, can I, can I, can yeah, I go just ahead. say. Yeah. Uh, and here's the irony. Uh, here's where racism and wealth are so ugly. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. People's, uh, people, their, their standard of living and so on has deteriorated. But here's the clever thing. Then rich white people who have shipped their jobs overseas, not given them raises to keep up with the standard of uh, with, with uh, uh, inflation, uh, who, uh, who have automated and put them out of work so that they make more profits and right. employ fewer people. Those people tell them to blame black and brown people for their life being worse. Yep. That's where this thing goes absolutely crazy. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, this is another whole subject we could talk about, but um, the, the race is really important conversation. Economics is also a really important yep. conversation for us to have. Yeah. And, and the Bible has so much to say about that. Jesus begins his ministry by quoting Isaiah and saying, yep. I've come to preach good news to the poor, you know. Yeah. So this is exciting stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the economic piece is is one that uh, a lot of people don't, don't really know enough to talk about, and it hasn't been part of our cultural dialogue uh, for a long enough period of time. I feel like it's only recently that, uh, you know, with some of the more, you know, what people would consider liberal or leftist mm -hmm. uh, politics have made it more of an issue, which, you know, for now has really characterized it as the fringe, you know, the left, the alt-left, as they like yeah. to uh, to yeah. call them, you know, uh, yeah, heaven forbid that people make a, a livable wage, but, you know. Well, that's one of the things that Reverend William Barber was talking about in the Poor People's Campaign is that this unification is not just a minority issue, that that economics crosses all genders, exactly. races, <laughs> everything. Yeah. So if, if, if all people unite, and this is including white folks and all this stuff, if all the poor people put down some of the racial barriers and just band together and just basically for solidarity, really, even if you just had exactly. to find a common ground – that things would get done at a much faster pace, that yeah. we might not experience some of these 
sort of atrocities with this crazy healthcare reform and yeah. all of the different sort of, you know, repeal and replace attempts that have been, we might not be in this sort of scenario yeah. if there was a little bit more cohesion. Yeah. But again, to your point, the narrative is given out to, you know, white folks. And a lot of people probably don't know the the economic disparity that even Los Angeles is in. And that's, right. that's again, that's yeah. not just minorities. That's across all, uh, all races and genders. Yeah. And so. a lot of these, obviously, uh, a lot of these debates really overlap, right? And I want to kind of get into something that you were involved in uh, not too long ago, which was Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was kind of following you, and and uh, I wanted to to know if you could talk maybe a little bit about your experience in Charlottesville and and what you saw that maybe wasn't really reported or, or written on. Sure. Well, first of all, I should say that um, uh, the reason I was there was that uh, uh, some dear friends who I've kind of mentored and known for years uh, are in ministry in Charlottesville. And they contacted me and they said, listen, um, this, you know, this thing is going to be bad. Hmm. And we need white clergy to come here to represent a voice of peace. Um, wow. And we really need white clergy to do this because, in a sense, we need them to stand up to these white supremacists who are coming. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, how could I say no to that? So uh, I, I went in, in the couple of days before the, uh, before the, it was called the Unite the Right rally, right. Um, a couple of things happened that weren't widely publicized. Uh, a militia group from Pennsylvania, uh, it was announced that they were going to come and provide security. Um, and I've got to tell you, these militia groups are all over the country. And these hmm. people are uh, uh, incredibly well armed. I, I heard that the hmm. police in Charlottesville said that they were outgunned wow. by these militia. And I saw these guys. They had, you know, they'd have a semi-automatic weapon across their front. They'd have a rifle and a shotgun across their other shoulder. They'd have uh, guns and holsters at their waist. If they pulled up their pant leg, they had a couple little... There. Um, these guys were unbelievably uh, armed. Wow. And uh, so suddenly... Those of us who came as clergy had to face the possibility that we could walk out there and be part of a massacre. I mean, when you got mm. that many guns around, yeah, yeah, as we saw, we just know, saw it this weekend, last yeah. weekend, Any, yeah. anything can happen. So, <sighs> so that raised attention. On yeah, things. Another yeah. thing that happened was that uh, uh, some people. The, the way that these white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups communicated, they used a video game platform to communicate. So that way they would have secure oh, communications. Wow. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, I didn't. And mm. uh, I, I, I don't exactly know how these things work, but you guys might. But anyhow, it's a video game where you can communicate while you're on the video game. Mm. So they used this to communicate. And among them was an informant who kept taking screenshots of what they were saying. And then he funneled those screenshots to some friends of mine and they shared, I got to see those both in the days before the, uh, the, the rally and in the days after. And all I can tell you is when I read those things and then I went to the websites and I, I feel embarrassed to say this because uh, I felt like I had to take a shower afterwards, but I started going to the websites of these Unite the Right groups to just see what they were about. Hmm. And all I can tell you guys is 
this is scary, scary stuff. And these are people who literally yeah. praise Hitler, who praise the Holocaust, who praise genocide. Hmm. And, and you want a really bizarre one? They talk about Christianity as yeah. their... Oh, yeah. Well, that kind of reminds me, I think, in your book, you say, I'm not worried about Christianity dying. I'm, I'm worried about Christianity killing. Yeah, exactly. And then when the president wouldn't condemn these guys... You can just imagine the shivers that that sent down the people's. Uh, Ooh, if, yeah. if he's ignorant enough to say that, that's bad. Mm-hmm. But if he actually knows what's going on and and says it, it's even worse. Even worse. So, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it and, and then to watch Fox News and these other organizations try to create create a moral equivalence between the uh, the anti-fascists and and these guys. It, it was just, can I just tell you, someone who was there, it was really bizarre to see huh. that happen. Yeah. And my friends, I live down, in, I live in Florida. My friends are all, you know, 24 7 Fox News people, <laughs> and they, they believe everything that Fox News tells them. I, I, I was at church a couple of weeks ago, and after the service, a guy came up to me and he said, I heard that you were in Charlottesville. I said, Yeah. He said, I think you were wrong, and I don't respect you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No to the to the point, I guess. All right. Yeah. And, and I, uh, we talked. I, I wanted to try to understand. My motto is, you know, seek understanding, even if you can't seek agreement. Mm. Uh, and I, I asked him if if he's a Fox News watcher, and of course, it, it's where he it's his window on reality. Mm-hmm. People yeah. don't really, I, I often say the most powerful denomination in America is not the Catholic Church, it's not the Southern Baptist Church, it's the Church of Fox News. Mm. So yeah. Uh, it's a very powerful indoctrination tool. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to pull something from your article that you wrote in Time, which I think is a really important piece that, that talks a lot about um, the leaders and, and some of the things that I think are really important. Um, when we talk about media coverage and different things like this, something that I thought was really important is this quote that you said, um, uh, Pecanolini, Evans, and Spencer himself are telling us something we need to understand. White nationalism isn't simply an extremist political ideology. It's an alt-right religious movement that provides its adherents with its own twisted version of what all religions supply to its adherents. Identity, a personal sense of who I am, community, a social sense of where I belong, and purpose, a spiritual sense of why my life matters. Hmm. So when you're thinking about people who might be a little disenfranchised or who have come from a poor background or have grown up in an area where racism is very uh, prevalent and then that's just what they know, you can see how the appeal to an alt-right group like this just sounds, it sounds fantastic. And as someone like myself, I'm, I'm really passionate about community. As someone who kind of takes this idea of community and twists it into something so negative, I can't help but have like a visceral response to that. But on the same time, at the same time, I also feel truthfully a little sad for these folks that are just trying to reach out and and have that connection with something. And of all the options that they have to connect with and things to connect with, this is what they choose. They choose to to throw their alliance and their affiliation behind something like this. That's the part that I really have a hard time just breaking through. And and that's where I think it's important to hear from folks who were there and on the ground. Because when you when you really try to get down to who are these people, you know, I heard a 
uh, an amazing podcast from uh, from a, a group of people we know called the Liturgists, who they really talked about who is your enemy and identifying your enemy. And someone was someone uh, Peter Rollins. He actually made this correlation that I thought was incredible of kind of thinking of your enemy and loving your enemy, kind of like a hypochondriac loves their disease. It was this really interesting sort of like uh, you get life from this thing that is supposed to be killing you, you know, and that's kind of what an enemy has become. It's become this thing that we put, uh, America has, has always, you know, for the past few years really focused on enemies and we've created this thing where this thing that's killing us in a weird way kind of keeps us going. And, and I'm using quotes because it doesn't keep us going, but you, you see, you, that makes sense. And it just, it's so... It's just so mind-blowing to me. And you finish this quote saying, if faith communities don't provide these healthy, life-giving human needs, then death-dealing alt-religions will fill the gap. Hmm. And I think that's why the importance of understanding the the, um, the psychology behind some of this alt-right stuff is really important because these are just people. And when we are supposed to call to love our neighbor, I and mean, we've talked a lot about the church's response to certain things, what is the church going to have to do when we're supposed to, the only people that are left to love are the alt-right? You know, what if we've loved everyone else, but the only people we have left to love is the alt-right? What are we going to do then? Or the alt-left or the whatever? What are you really going to do? And you know, that's, a, that's kind of a hypothetical question that eventually we'll need to sit with as, as people who do, do church for a living, you know? So, so can I tell you a quick story? Um, yeah. So at one point after the crazy, crazy, crazy stuff was a little bit subsided and before uh, Heather Heyer was uh, killed, uh, there was this lull. And I was in this park and we were, a lot of people had been pepper sprayed. And so we were, you know, helping them. So anyhow, I was in this park, we were helping people. And this older lady uh, came uh, I, she told me how old she was. I think she was 82, 80 or 82, something like that. And I said, what brought you here today? And she said, uh, I, uh, this is my city. I live in Charlottesville. And uh, I couldn't let white supremacists uh, tell all the black people in this town that they should be afraid without me standing there and saying, uh, no, they're welcome here. We're all, we're all neighbors. And uh, I said, well, so what did you do? She said, I went and talked to a bunch of the Nazis. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, you know, the, on those websites I told you about and on those, uh, video, on those chat, uh, chats yes. online, uh, all of the uh, uh, United Right people were told, don't talk to people. Don't get into conversation. We're there to make a show of force. We're there to demonstrate. And we're there to listen to the speakers. Do not engage with people um, uh, in conversation. Um, but she got some of them to talk, and she talked to one of the guys holding a bunch of guns. And um, and I just, and she was a Quaker, and of course oh, Quakers wow. believe in peacemaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's and she had a Quaker T-shirt on, and um, she uh, and I thought, God bless you, good for you. You see, this is this is what's going to be required. Exactly what you said. We're going to have to have, and look, it's probably going to uh, a lot of the work is going to be white folks talking to white folks. And and not just say you dirty Nazi, you dirty white supremacist. You know that doesn't get us anywhere. Right. Yeah. But to say, um, I, I, you know, I, I read that um, that people join groups like this because they're really looking for identity, community, and purpose. 
tell me how you're getting those from this group. You know, right. I'm, real, I, I'm sincerely interested. And we listen to people. We are interested. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we, uh, you know, and, and guys like you could say, you know, we're part of this other community. Uh, if you'd ever like to come, we're after those same three things. Identity, we want to help people know who they are. Community, we want people to really belong. And purpose, we want people to really know why they're here and have a yeah. valid purpose in life. Uh, you know, that's, uh, I guess the old-fashioned word for that was evangelism. That's yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I was about to say. Busting yeah. out the E word. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, giving people good news, a better way to get yeah. those valid news. Yeah. Yeah. Since, since you brought up evangelism, I'm curious, you know, do you see... Uh, how do you view terminology like evangelical or a lot of people use progressive now or uh, a term we throw around a lot as uh, inclusive church? Um, do you see terminology being still valuable uh, when it comes to a lot of these markers that are kind of misused in culture and uh, seem kind of empty? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a perpetual struggle, isn't it? Because two people say the same word and they mean really different things. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we, you know, there's no way around it. If we're going to talk, we got to use words. And, <laughs> but what it means is we haven't keep to stop and we have to say, hey, look, I just want to be sure. What do you mean when you say conservative? Oh, look, I, I just want to be sure. What do you mean when you say progressive? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, I, I've heard that all progressives believe this. Is that true of you? So, so we continually try to achieve understanding you know? mm -hmm. that that becomes essential i used to really dislike the word progressive because i knew that uh, uh that for all my conservative friends as soon as they heard that word they would uh they would just write you off you know yeah. but now i just feel like look if you whatever you want to call me is okay if, <laughs> What, but ask what I ask me what I actually think. Yeah. And don't come to conclusions. And I want to do the same for for other people. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really good. I uh, just wanted to bring in one more thing, and then we'll uh, talk about a couple of the events you've got coming up and a few things and wrap up our time. But one thing that we like to offer our community is uh, some, some sort of practical takeaways. And, and one thing that I, I think would be interesting to hear from you is uh, we've talked with other guests about how to remain resilient in times like this and maybe even how to approach conversations with people that are difficult. And I just would wondering if you could share, you know, maybe one or two things that you do to help prepare yourself to have those conversations and how you, um, yeah, just equip to, to step into that space? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. Um, uh, and I, I would say I, I don't have an answer for that that would apply equally to everybody except sure. on a very general level. And yeah. on a very general level, I would say there are, you know, people often call these um, spiritual practices. There are general practices we do uh, that we learn to try to keep our heart in a good place. Um, and so for me, that means, uh, you know, daily practicing God's presence, being in touch with God weekly, uh, being part of a faith community where I participate in the Eucharist and I, mm -hmm. I, I, uh, you know, am led in, in an experience of worship with a community. Um, uh, so you know there, there there are practices like that that keep us in a that where we try to stay in, in a good place, um, but the the word resilience is really important because the other thing I would say there, there's a proverb I memorized when I was a kid um, guard your heart well 
for from it flow the springs of life. Mm-hmm. And that what that has said to me through the years is I need to monitor my own morale. Mm-hmm. I need to say, oh. how's my heart? And it's okay to say, I'm tired. Or it's okay to yeah. say, I'm angry. Or I'm losing hope. Or, but I, to be able to self-report first just to myself, you know, mm-hmm. to ask myself how I am. Um, it really helps to be able to have a few friends you can be honest about that too. Yeah. But then it's my responsibility to, to manage my own resilience then. Mm. And so what that means is if I know that I'm tired, then I've got to know what restores me and what what renews me. And that's different mm. for different ones. Different people. Yeah. Might be, you know, for me, it's getting outdoors. It's being in nature. It's getting out of my kayak. It's throwing a, uh, a, a casting a fly rod. Uh, or it's watching a really stupid movie, right? Yes. <laughs> for, for other people, you know, it might be something very different. But I think we yeah. all have to know what it is that recharges us. Yeah. Spoken um, like a good four. Yeah, right it's spoken like, spoken like a yeah. true four. Yeah. So uh, you're going to be in L.A. coming up here pretty soon. Yeah. Um, our, our listeners here, some of them are based in Los Angeles. So you're going to be in L.A. on October 13th and 14th. That's correct? Yeah. yeah, it's actually going to be Ventura. Oh, it's Ventura. Oh, it's Ventura. Okay, yeah, so it was just north, just north of LA. Yeah, it okay. was moved. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I don't get out there often enough, although I think I'll be in, in the LA area a couple of times uh, in the next six months. But um, uh, I, uh, a dear friend named Gareth Higgins, Gareth was a um, activist and peace worker, and he's from Northern Ireland. So during their long troubles, they're called, mm-hmm. he was involved in the conflict there and so we're co-presenting uh, something called the seventh story and um, uh, I over the years uh, developed this way of describing human conflict in terms of six narratives or six stories and when you understand those six stories you just start seeing them at work everywhere um, I, I actually discover them in, in the Gospels, but um, then you start, you see them in the headlines, and you also see them in your personal life. You say, oh man, my family, we're playing out that story, or my brother, he's uh, living by that story. Interesting. Um, and, uh, and then you under, can understand Jesus as telling a different story to frame our lives by. So um, we're going to be, uh, I'm, it's going to really be fun. We were just finalizing the program the other day. Um, and we're going to, it's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to screen a movie. We're going to read a children's a book that Gareth and I and an artist are working on together that tells these seven stories. Mm. We're going to engage people in conversation. Uh, we're going to end with a campfire and a kind of exciting uh, uh, celebration at the end. So it's going to be 27 hours uh, wow. of adventure. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. And I mean, it just really gives me a... Uh, a nice vision of just entry points for people to mm-hmm. tell their story, you know, and to hear other people's story. Exactly and, right. you know, in, in LA, the narratives drive this city, you know, we're a storytelling city. And, uh, I think, I think in this day and age storytelling, kind of like what you were saying about the young woman or the older woman who the Quaker who just went and started talking with these alt-right folks, just getting to know people and just having a conversation and just creating that, that equal, even space where there's no agenda, there's just 
yeah. sharing. When I think even moving forward as a um, as a society or as Christians uh, that find themselves in the U.S., uh, it's going to take a lot of work of creating a new narrative for all mm-hmm. of us. And I think that's, that's part. Exactly. I think that's part of the the migration that you talk about. Uh, but do you exactly. do you have a new book that's coming out this fall, Brian? Yeah, uh, no, here's what's happening this fall. I wish I could show you one. I, I don't think I have one here. Yeah, I do. Um, so two things are happening. My, my book, uh, Great Spiritual Migration, um, another publisher uh, put out a DVD and a study guide and then a leader's guide to help groups use that book. So that's oh, okay. the way of life. That's the way, great. The way of life. Okay. Came out like a week ago. And uh, nothing this good has ever been done for any of my books. So I'm very grateful. Oh, that's uh, great. So, yeah, so it helps groups uh, use, uh, do a four-week study, or it could also be used on a weekend retreat yeah. on, oh, great. Uh, on Grace Spiritual Migration. And then the book I wrote before that, which is an overview of the whole Bible, that's mm-hmm. called... Um, uh, we make the... We make the yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the publisher came to me and said, um, we would like to re-release this as daily devotional. So we took, huh. uh, uh, you know, 52 chapters to give an overview of the Bible, one per week, and then we right. broke those into five uh, sections. So wow. I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. That'll be out, I think, in next month. That sounds really that, cool, like a cool way to frame that book. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's called Seeking Aliveness. Seeking book. Aliveness. All right, well, wow. we'll... we'll uh, We'll put those in the show notes and link, yeah. links to all of that. Yeah, links so, to all that stuff. It's really good. And make sure that, uh, you know, if you're looking just to dip your toes into uh, some of Brian's work, I mean, the 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 different levels of the offerings of your writings is just amazing. Everything from seemingly relatively kind of scholarly, you know, a little bit more heady stuff to then, you know, this amazing sort of fiction, nonfiction, uh, amazing just narrative yeah. stuff through a new kind of Christian. So um, whatever you're looking looking for wherever you are in your life odds are Brian has a book for you so um, <laughs> if you if you're looking for some yeah. some great um, just interesting four but blanketed in a nine voice uh, yeah. his uh, yeah. his stuff is his stuff is great so we'll make yeah. sure to put that but the the great spiritual migration is the new book yeah. uh, loving it thank you so much for yeah. the sense of urgency that you um, that you felt and that you conveyed throughout this book yeah. it's um, it's very inspiring, and thank you for using your position to stand up for what's right. You know, uh, you mentioned briefly it could be easy to just dip back into the the weeds and just pretend, but uh, you're not doing it, and you're inspiring guys like Ryan and myself to yeah. to 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 kind of carry what you're doing forward. So, um, thank you for that, and thank you for yeah. being with us today. We really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, yeah, thank you. All right, thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Mission Hills LA Conversations podcast. Hey, if you like this podcast, go find us on social media at, at Mission Hills LA and say hey. Or visit us online at missionhillsla.com or leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And uh, as we're getting this podcast off the ground, we really appreciate all the feedback. Also, if you're in the Los Angeles area, we have a lot of upcoming events. You can find that on Facebook or on our website. And we'd love to see you at an upcoming event. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Mission Hills LA Conversations.